Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, November 19th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 11. Today's episode is going to be all about seed sharing. Some of you may know that last year I started a seed share project in the interest of increasing our food security and also to grow some different cultivars that I didn't have access to. Maybe I would ask the community and see what happened and As these experiments go, they go faster than you anticipate them to. So a lot of people got involved, and I'm really grateful for that. It's been a worldwide effort, and we're sharing seeds. I think it's an amazing thing. It's a resistance of sorts. So I'm really committed to increasing the capacity of our community to feed itself healthy food. And I believe that this is through education that fosters resilience and self-reliance and a culture of free sharing and abundance. So with that said, I want to talk about why to save seeds, why it's an important practice, and what a seed share is, what a decentralized seed library is, and how we can start up these networks and work together to grow more food for our people. I want to talk about how pollination works and what the best practices for collecting seeds are. And that also has to do with growing and the methods that you use to grow so that you get the truest seeds. And lastly, I'm going to talk a bit about why horizontal seed sharing and growing year after year is a far better food security than a outside seed vault, like the Svalbard seed vault that many of you may know of, or relying on the state or the government to be keeping track of the different cultivars in our in our climate. The early development of agriculture is very interesting and I suggest really getting into the research of it. But if you look back on the history of seed saving, we're talking about something that is at least 12,000 years old and, you know, likely even goes back further into history, and we were domesticating animals arguably around the same time or maybe even a little bit before we started domesticating plants and growing them. But around 9,500 BC, the founder crops of agriculture appear. The first wheats, barleys, peas, lentils, chickpeas, flax, corn, um, these really big staples that we we know of today, and we can identify some of those regions of the world where all of that agriculture started to begin. But one of the first things I like to start out when we talk about why to save seed is to continue a human tradition that's really, really old and really, really important to human survival. We figured this out long, long ago, and I find it scary that we're so disassociated from our food and the way that it's grown, especially when a tradition that is so old isn't kept alive, I worry that we are losing touch with ourselves. So why save seeds? The first thing for me would be to continue the human tradition. The second reason is to create a culture of sharing and regeneration and abundance, I believe, in action, that we can tell each other what we need from each other. And if we want to create a culture, it requires creating. It requires action and doing. So I really want to talk about seed saving as something that brings communities together and it starts to collectivize people, even though we live in such an individualized and alienated society. Another reason is to develop your own seed stock that's well-suited for your climate Climate makes a big difference in the way that things grow. Not everyone's seeds are going to do well in different altitudes and different 
amounts of rain and different amounts of heightened or lowered temperatures. It's all very, very malleable, and we need to start to develop a relationship with the plants, have an understanding of what they need um, so that we can grow the best food possible. And then some other reasons include saving money, of course. When you have access to seeds, you have access to the fruit that they will bear and the seeds that they will produce again. So you're always uh, taking supplemental money, hopefully, off of your grocery bill by, by starting to grow your own food. And then, of course, a big one for me is the, the capitalism element here. Eliminate your dependence on harmful agro-business. There's no reason that we need to be relying on Monsanto and friends to give us our seeds, to give us our ability to save them, uh, to make us sign licensing to not allow us to save our own seeds. It's all very dangerous and political, and it very much has to do with control and power and the power of profit. So I would definitely say that saving seeds is an act of resistance because they do not want us doing it. So let's go ahead and do that. If you're interested in saving seeds, you need to know a bit about how pollination works. Pollination is the key to getting seeds to produce the plants that you want year after year. A seed must be pollinated to produce a new plant. It's a process of fertilization. Plants have two different pollination styles mainly. Of course, nature is more diverse than binaries, so you know how that goes. But the two main categories are self-pollinators, which are considered seeds that are easy to save because the male and female parts are contained within a single flower. And so it can be very easily fertilized itself, either through wind or through insects that Basically, the pollen has to move from one part of the flower to another to pollinate. So it's super simple. Everything's happening all in one. And then the other version of pollination is called a cross-pollination, which is an advanced seed-saving technique if you're going to design a garden specifically for saving seed. And this is where male and female flowers are separate flowers. So the flowers have different characteristics and pollen must move from the male flower to the female flower. So that is, takes a little bit more uh, coordination with the insects and with the wind. And it's much more likely that these cross-pollinated plants have developed symbiotic relationships with other organisms that move their pollen for them. So there's a very beautiful dance that's going on with the rest of the ecology but the pollen must move from one flower to another in order for that flower to be fertilized and produce a fruit. So those are the two types of pollination. There are a few other pollination distinctions that I want to make because these terms are a little bit confusing and they have to be explained. So you may have heard of open pollinated seeds or perhaps heirloom seeds or hybrid seeds. Now these three things are all different so The first thing is that open pollination is what I just described when pollination is occurring by insects or animals moving through the brush, humans, wind, birds. There's no restrictions on the flow of pollen between individuals. So open pollinated plants have a greater genetic diversity and this causes variation within the plant population. It allows for adaptations that are specific to growing conditions or climates. And as long as pollen isn't shared between different varieties within one same species, those seeds will be true to type year after year. 
heirloom varieties are similar. All heirloom varieties must be open pollinated, but not all open pollinated plants are considered heirloom varieties. That's a plant that has a history of being passed down from a community of people, uh, and that's oftentimes in the name of the heirloom. It'll say something about the people that were growing it, or it'll have some reference to the geography, if you notice that. So heirlooms are really about generational sharing and saving of seeds, whereas open pollination is just a natural process that happens. Heirlooms are where human hand had a role in that, but natural systems still had to go and, and make that pollination process happen. Then you have hybridization, which is something else entirely. This is really where human hands come in. It's a controlled method of pollination. So the pollen of two different species are purposefully crossed by human intervention. So, I mean, that can occur naturally, but really we're talking about commercially available hybridized seed. That's deliberately created to breed a desired trait into a plant. So it can produce higher yields. There are certain advantages to hybrid seeds. And in for-profit growing situations, a lot of farmers are going to choose hybrids because they're going to be able to produce more with them. There's a certain vigor uh, that you know, can be captured by using specific hybrids and crossing them. But there are downsides to this. The plant is very genetically unstable and it can't be saved for seed in the following years. So it won't be true to type and it may, the next year may be considerably less vigorous. Not all the seeds may germinate. So gardeners who use hybrid plant varieties, they have to purchase new seed every year to ensure that they're getting that perfect cross every time. Because then after you go after the next generation, now you're changing things again and there's a lack of stabilization to the seed. And as I've just mentioned, these farmers are people who are doing it for profit usually, and so that's not an option for them. So they buy the seed year after year. So this is completely your choice which type of seed you're interested in. I'm mainly interested in open pollinated heirloom varieties and really keeping the genetic biodiversity alive and learning more about native plants and really trying to understand the ecology of the place where I'm living at the time. And that's my personal preference, but these are all things that you should definitely know about if you're going to go ahead and save seeds. So now that you understand the process, what would be the basics of collecting seeds? I would suggest starting with your self-pollinators because they're going to be very easy to ensure that you have the truest seed. And so I have some examples of that. Self-pollinators are things like tomatoes, lettuce, sunflowers, peas, beans, lentils, eggplants, tomatillos, basil, peppers, spinach, carrots. As you can see, there are plenty that you can start with. Um, you should have no issue with getting a full garden going just with self-pollinators if you wanted to. Once you're comfortable with that, you can move on to growing cross-pollinating or naturally outbreeding plants. Some of those could include things like your garlic, leeks, onions, beet, chard, spinach, quinoa, celery, parsley, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kale, turnips, cucumbers, squash, corn, wheat. Uh, these types of things 
are a bit harder to grow true. So you have to grow them in a patch, in a square. I think a three by three is always a good way to start. And when you grow the plants in one area, you're pretty much ensuring that they're majority they're going to be pollinating with each other and not out into the world, uh, which is what you're trying to prevent. So you have to take some precautions in your garden design so you can properly grow plants that cross-pollinate easily. So that requires a little bit of planning and you want to make sure that they're labeled correctly when you do actually add them to a seed library so that everyone can enjoy them as well. Around autumn time is usually when I do the majority of my seed saving, and I talked about this in my previous farming podcast about extending the harvest. As you know, there's always a different season for planting, and I think it's really a year-round thing, even if you live in a colder climate or where the majority of the year is colder. I think it's still possible to really maximize the season through good planting techniques. But a lot of your summer stuff it's going to feel the cold and it's naturally going to do what a lot of annuals do and a lot of perennials do, which is respond to the stimuli and say, hey, we're shutting down. So it'll go ahead and produce seed for you. And I usually clip my seed pods when the flowers have fallen off fully or dried, depending on the plant and what exactly it does. And then I'll let that seed mature for a bit before I actually cut it off. And then I'm usually placing it on a drying rack so that, or hanging it so that it can start to release the seeds and fully, fully dry because you don't want molds. Once you're starting to store seeds, you really want to keep it dry, dry, dry. And sometimes you have to wash the seed and get some of the medium off of the seed to prevent molding. Although, personally, I'm not bothered for my own seeds if there is a a small amount of decomposition happening. What you don't want is the seed to be not viable, Um, and so the best way is to clean the medium off. But I don't know. I believe, you know, the tomato falls into the garden because it ripened too fast, and then the next year there's 30 tomato plants, and that was just right in the tomato. Nothing, there was no human intervention in that. So... I think we should be keeping our seeds as pristine as possible, and many seed savers do it even better than me. But I also have other thoughts about just, you know, following nature's lead and how nature seems to have the seed in a medium for a reason. So I I just find that whole aspect of it kind of interesting. But usually I'm letting my seeds dry out during this time, and then I will start packaging them and labeling them in small baggies, Uh, that are airtight and sealed and place them in a cool dry place and they will last for a very long time and that's excluding tropical plants because the conditions for tropical seed are different from pretty much everything else so they really unlike a lot of other seeds that can be frozen they really need to be kept in a, a warmer dry place Uh, to be viable. And the last thing I want to talk about is why it's important that we have our own networks for keeping our seeds and growing them year after year to increase food security. And I much prefer this method of action to putting our faith in a seed vault or a state or an outside institution 
because they are not democratically accessible to us. We can't just access those seeds and run our experiments with them. They're more in the vein of apocalyptic and perhaps even sort of into chemical warfare and there are other more sinister reasons why the state is keeping a hold on certain seeds. And Svalbard is really interesting as a seed vault because almost every country in the world has deposited seeds to it. It has over 865,000 samples and some exceptions to those that are participating are Japan and China and India as well it remains very weary. And there are also issues with the seed vault that there's an uneven collection of what is making it into the vault. So there may be overabundance of certain types of cultivars and then not enough like leafy greens or staples uh, from different areas of the world. So there are way more than 865,000 plants on earth. Way more. So if you think about it that way, it's only giving a small, small sliver of the genetic diversity that exists. So think about trying to keep a record of all of that. We haven't even discovered many species. So it's kind of interesting to think about. And as I just mentioned, there are certain cultivars that simply cannot be frozen and kept. And many of those are from the tropical region. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is actually located on a Norwegian island called Spitsbergen, and it's in the Arctic Svalbard Archipelago. So it's very close to the North Pole, just 1,300 kilometers away. And there are many things that just won't, simply won't respond well to that kind of vault freezing. And there's also just thinking about it, again, as, as something that's inaccessible. So you're locking away these crops, you're locking away their genetics for a future. But the best way to keep seed viable is to continue growing it every single year. It's not a static thing. So if the climate changes, you want to be growing it while the climate's changing so that it will respond well in the new climate. So there's sort of this issue of it being a static vault where I'm, at least my vision for this seed sharing program is a living, moving, decentralized, everybody's growing, everybody's saving, there are failures, there are successes, we keep trying. So it's a very active thing uh, in contrast. So there are people who, you know, have definitely critiqued the seed vault as being a waste of resources when those resources could be going elsewhere. So that's something to think about as well. And then, of course, I couldn't talk about seeds without talking about Monsanto. And I think it's really important that we go over this at the end because the idea for a seed library is that we are getting really close to nature. We're getting really in touch with the natural process, and we're starting to develop a relationship with that process and learn how to nurture that process. So what Monsanto does that is particularly problematic is that they patent seeds. They develop varieties of seed, 
and then they put patents on those seeds. So they make those seeds their intellectual property, which is just fucking smug. But <laughs> with that said, they consider patents to be necessary to, quote, ensure that they're paid for their products and the investments that they put into developing them. And that's their reasoning behind patents, right? But patents is really all about profit. And so what happens when a farmer works with Monsanto is they purchase a patented seed variety and they sign an agreement that they will not save and replant those seeds produced from the seed they buy from, from Monsanto. Monsanto has tried really hard to produce seed that is not viable the next year, but they can't really they haven't really gotten a full handle on that. That is true with some varieties, but there are plenty of varieties where farmers could attempt to save those seeds, but they won't because Monsanto is dead serious about suing farmers for breaking that patent agreement. And more than 325,000 farmers a year buy seed under seed agreements with Monsanto in the United States. And you can read all about Monsanto's history with lawsuits over 100, I think it's 147 lawsuits filed since 1997 in the United States against farmers. So as you can see, this is causing an issue for a lot of small farms who are already struggling uh, because there are many issues with agriculture, global agriculture, and policy around the world. We have a very broken system of agriculture, and this corporatized control over seeds is dangerous to our society. It suggests that men could be owners of nature and that they could develop and control nature. And anyone who understands the soil and understands the plants knows that that is simply not true and that nature is actually female and that she's diverse and cyclical and a lot more sophisticated than something that can just be bridled and controlled. So I think for us as people who save seeds, we are directly challenging that system of control and that system of dependency. And we're looking outside of ourselves and looking at the larger ecology to understand who we are. And I think that's really brave because we have convenience as a person living in the first world, we have convenience and we have the we have the advantages and the privileges of living just to consume food and not to ever really understand how it got to our table. And everything that I do that's involved with agriculture comes back to wanting to understand and have a relationship with what has been lost. And I think it's really, really dangerous that these agribusiness companies can destroy farmers' lives by people, you know, who are really just scraping by, destroy their lives for a profit. 
And that has to do with the larger system of agriculture. And these agro-giants have a lot of control in not only the U.S. government, but governments around the world. It's, it's all very tied in. There's a lot of overlap between people that are working for these agro-business companies and people who are working for pharmaceutical companies and people who are involved in public policy and lobbying and government. So it's things that we really need to be cautious of and we need to protect ourselves in terms of learning the legality in your state and if you are willing to directly challenge that, just knowing what you're up against and how you would defend yourself legally is always important. So far I haven't had to worry about that with the seed library, but who knows, maybe it will grow and maybe people will become more concerned, maybe somebody will challenge me about that and I'd be happy to lay it out for them, but maybe I can just send them this podcast first, eh? So I hope you learned something today about why seed saving is such a passion of mine and why it's important that we start saving seeds and sharing them with one another. And I really think that we need to look outside of any system that we aren't in direct control over and that we don't have direct access to. I think we should be very critical of, of them as solutions to issues regarding climate change and food security and that we just need to keep building and little by little you have more and more access. I started my seed share as an attempt to get some new cultivars to grow and I ended up with over 100 cultivars from around the world that I can share with you. So please contact me if you're interested in growing any of these, and I can give you a link to the seed share, and you can get involved as well, and I would just absolutely love that. So please join us. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone who enjoys saving seed. This concludes episode 11 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Happy planting.